Baseball Buffet has started. Step up to the plate and get in the buffet line. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Well, it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Welcome to Baseball Buffet, our monthly roundtable focusing on recent baseball events. We'll work our conversation in and around our luncheon at the Zoom Cafe, our online meeting space where we shelter in place. Today we looked at the expanding role of women in Major League Baseball that has been darkened recently by evidence of long-ignored sexual harassment. As it includes more women in management and coaching roles, can MLB clean up its act? Next we look at MLB's decision to pilot several rule changes in the minor leagues. What are the implications for the Major League game? Will the minors of today be the majors of tomorrow? We end our day's Zoom dining with our last bites. Our buffet of baseball commentators include... Andy Jeff Ione. Award-winning photographer and former image master of the Chicago Cubs. Chuck Hildebrandt. Award-winning baseball researcher and chair emeritus of Sabres Baseball and the Media Research Committee. Stuart Shea. Author of Wrigley Field, The Long Life and Contentious Times of the Friendly Confines. I'm your host, Jim Walker, author of Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio. Our good friend and baseball buffet regular, Tom Henninger, is working hard to get the next issue of Baseball Digest out. He'll be back next month. For our opening appetizer, let's start with a brief remembrance of the spring training early season phenom on your favorite team that has disappointed as the season rolled on. Who is your all-time early season bust? All right, Stu. Well, in 2012, the Cubs gave 68 spring training at-bats to 29-year-old Joe Mather, a journeyman infielder who had done nothing with the Cardinals or Braves. Mather hit 382 against spring pitching with three homers and 15 ribbies. Impressed, the Cubs made him their top utility man off the bench. During the regular season, his last in the majors, Mather batted 209 with a 256 on base percentage and 243 plate appearances. His negative 2.0 war was the worst on a Cubs team that finished 61 and 101. <laughs> Check yeah, what youthful Detroit Tiger crashed and burned so brightly in your life. Well, Sparky Anderson. So he started managing the Tigers in 1979, and he was a man given to hyperbole about his young players. So one of the first things that he said about Kirk Gibson was that he would be the next Mickey Mantle. I mean, Gibson had a pretty good career, but Mickey Mantle, he ain't. And, uh, and a guy named Chris Patero was supposed to displace Lou Whitaker to third base permanently back in 1985. So how did that one work out? But th- the most sparky-induced bust in Tigers history has to be Tori Lovello. He had been a fifth-round draft pick who came to camp in 1989 after hitting 381 in a late-season call-up the year before and uh, had played only a year and a half professionally. Nevertheless, Sparky said Lavello had baseball instincts that were as good as Alan Trammell's. And uh, Lavello broke camp with the team because Sparky said, we've got to have his bat. Well, Lavello must have left the bat he hit 361 with that spring back in Lakeland <laughs> because he came out of the gate in Detroit going 0 for his first 20. And he was uh, exiled to Toledo in mid-May, sporting a 115 batting average. So oh. to his credit... Lovello sloughed off the high expectations that spring by saying he was focusing on his time being a learning experience. Well, that learning experience paid off in 2017 when Lovello was named manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he will be entering the 2021 season in his fifth season at the helm. 
Andy, what was your all-time early season blowout? Well, in the spring of 2007, Ronnie Cedeno hit mm. 328 with a slugging percentage of 516 in 26 games, 16 runs, three home runs, and 11 walks. However, in typical Cubs fashion, the tables quickly turned in the regular season where he batted 203 with an OPS of just 231 in 74 at-bats and spent most of the rest of the season in Iowa. Uh, The offseason brought to surface several new examples of sexual harassment in Major League Baseball. The Mets fired their recently hired GM and the Angels have suspended their pitching coach. Harassment has always been a problem for women in baseball, but their role as participants in the game is expanding, if ever so slowly. This is for everyone, so anyone jump in. What is the nature of harassment in MLB, and why has it been hidden for so long? Well, I mean, I can jump in a little bit as someone who's worked in Major League Baseball. It's obviously a reflection of society. You know, having little or no power in a work environment creates... Mm -hmm. an environment that stifles, it creates this element of those who speak and those who are spoken to. And Mm -hmm. as broken as this is, the role of women in the game has actually changed quite a bit since I received a paycheck from Major League Baseball. It's not just about a culture of harassment. It's essentially the way things were for women navigating any male-dominated industry, especially sports. There's this unspoken understanding that this is a man's world. And if you're not one, you have to be emotionally tough and roll with the punches to be a part of it. For me personally, I was fortunate not to feel uncomfortable when I was one of just a few women in that environment. I was definitely reminded of my minority status. This is obviously not every woman's story. It's my experience. Yet, Over the years, especially more recently, seeing women get positions of power really does make an impact. And the long of it is that you just need a balance. And there just hasn't been a balance. And now we're starting to get a little bit of a balance. So you're optimistic, Andy, that this recent scandal is going to lead to some substantial changes? Not particularly. (laughs) However, some basic updates to the workplace code of conduct were made with the additions of a third-party anonymous hotline for reporting incidents of harassment and require a anti-harassment and discrimination training for club executives actually happening next week during spring training. The league also hired a woman, Michelle Meyer Ship, as its chief person and culture officer last summer to oversee all of MLB's human resource activities. So I hate to be pessimistic, but it does stink of Major League Baseball PR push. Like, look, we've hired a woman to oversee human resources. We have a hotline. So it's something, but I question how things will really make any kind of tangible cultural change. Women being in positions where they have power is probably the biggest positive. I wonder if there was a woman in a position of influence or power in the Cleveland Indians organization or the New York Mets organization when Mickey Calloway was essentially moving through and apparently Mm -hmm. doing what he had been doing for uh, for years. 
it's interesting to me that enough women are speaking out and even the athletic publishing these stories now, bringing them out. And so at least through the media, there's some influence, whether that continues or not, I don't know. Yeah. Thank God. Thank God for Katie Strang. She's doing great work. Yeah, I, I do believe the new generation of players, you know, like the Gen Z players, the guys yeah. who are born maybe after 1995. I think they may have, I think they have a different, maybe more accepting view of women in the game and even in positions of power Absolutely. because you know, they grew up in the 2000s and the 2010s. So they've been used to seeing the, the kind of role models of women in leadership roles or even badass roles that we did when we were growing up. So I don't right. think that they'll have as much of a, like a troglodyte's view of it been a boys club you know it's ruled by the ethos of you know boys will be boys which absolutely. is absolutely i mean that's like an exculpatory phrase with this long right. history that would have been said with a wink and a chuckle but now and it wasn't accepted it say, was accepted yeah. that was just but now like, when you say it, it doesn't it sound dark it sounds very dark oh, yeah. now when you say it because in yes. light of what we know now about behavior towards women i mean it's, right. it sounds like absolution for like technically criminal behavior or something I was just saying, I know myself going into Major League Baseball, it was just sort of like, this is a given. This is just how it is. And for me, I was not uncomfortable being one of the only women in a situation with a lot of men. But it was just a given that I'm going to be in this situation with a lot of men. Right. Let's talk about the other side of it. Chuck, are we actually seeing any real progress in women becoming part of the management and coaching of Major League Baseball teams? Well, if you want to measure progress against, you know, traditional benchmark of women's involvement in professional baseball, which has been practically zero up to this point, then, then yes, technically they're making progress now. Yeah. Is the current level of involvement that women have in the game, is that satisfactory? Is it enough? I mean, should it be accepted as the apotheosis of their involvement in the game? And Andy said basically already an emphatic no to that. And I agree. And I think most people would. But then how do they rise to this level in numbers too great to ignore? You see what I did there? <laughs> so, some, sometimes people speculate whether a woman could ever play in the major leagues as if you know one day a, woman, a team would just slot a woman onto their roster out of i don't know left field i guess but you know such a moment couldn't come out of nowhere a woman making the major leagues as a player would have to come up as any other american boy does she would have to be the very best player in a high school baseball team probably the Absolutely. best in the league maybe yeah. her county maybe even her state she would have to get drafted in a slot likely to make the majors which is basically first round upper first round she would have to you know put in the years in the minors to hone her game and then eventually earn her way into the roster i think that's the only way women players could make the majors and i think that's kind of the same thing with female coaches and management you know they I have agree. to they have to make their bones Yep. Come up through the ranks, make yep. themselves known, whether through merit or organizational politics, you know, as the case mm-hmm. may be. And eventually they'll earn the slot, which is what basically Kim Eng did. And it took her a lot longer than someone of her knowledge, skill, and experience Absolutely. would Absolutely. suggest. But that's usually true of pioneers anyway. Right. But as more women take the extraordinary step of contributing to a major league franchise, the rise of women in general should follow a more mundane trajectory. And to me, that would be the real progress. It would not be considered extraordinary Extraordinary. at that point, or even worse, it wouldn't be considered an affirmative action hire. When women routinely reach the highest echelons of big league front offices, I think that'll be the progress that we're looking for. Absolutely. Uh, So Stu, would you agree that this isn't just uh, some new form of tokenism, that there might actually be some structural change underway? The change is real to the extent that women are now in uniform as coaches and instructors in the dugouts doing groundskeeping and physical therapy and translation, writing in the press box, serving as broadcasters, uh, all with great distinction. We will see how long it takes for it to become normal for a woman to be in the C-suite without it becoming national headline news or without certain baseball writers making patronizing comments about their work ethic or how 
gee, they're really good at their job. What a shock. The allegations against Callaway and the fact that the Indians and Mets seemed sort of willing to ignore his bad behavior just because he's a good pitching coach means that I think we still have a really long way to go. As it has been for African-Americans and Latinos, women are going to have to be better at their jobs than a comparable white guy. Twice as good. Absolutely. Just to hang in there. I mean, think about how many African-Americans get a chance or Latinos get a chance to manage a terrible team. Right. Once that team's ready to contend, out of here, you know, we're going to get this white guy in here. We'll take a break with the hope that baseball will finally figure out how to respect women. We'll be back in a flash. back just a quick reminder that baseball buffet is available on most top podcast providers including apple itunes google play and many more amazon echo users can access our podcast lickety split just say alexa play baseball buffet on itunes now that major league baseball has absorbed minor league baseball its plans for the minors are becoming clearer part of that plan is to use the minor leagues to test potential changes that might later come to the majors Let's look at some of the changes that will be piloted this summer. Stu, tell us something about the limits on pickoff moves coming to A-ball. Is that really a good idea? I find it silly. Nobody says that baseball games are too long because of pickoff throws. Pitchers need to practice pickoffs in order to develop a move that won't be called a balk in the majors. This, to me, just seems like eyewash to distract us from the fact that games are really too long because of between-inning commercial breaks. Doesn't it take away something that fans love to boo? I mean, it's isn't, fan, isn't right? that it's something fun. fans actually get into and after about the fourth of one of these, and, they start booing the pitcher? And to me, one of the most exciting things in baseball is seeing a pitcher throw two or three pickoffs and then pick the guy off. Right. That is thrilling to me because right, that's, right. that's applied science. That's but that I, is, I've never heard anybody say this is a problem except Bill James. He's been on this campaign for a few years, and that's like – I have never seen so many throws over the first that I said that rule's got to be changed. Yeah, it's, I've it's, never it's seen a, it. Maybe it's a solution four, maybe five once. Yep. Yeah, it seems to kind of come out of left field. I don't recall any discussions. People have talked about pitch clocks and batters stepping out and those yeah. things for years, yep. right? Yep. But I'd never heard anybody really bringing this up as a huge problem. Maybe right. a minor never. annoyance, but never. I just don't understand why you would want to limit players' development right, in this way. Yeah, that's a very good point. You're actually talking mm-hmm. about the minor leagues where players are developing their skills, and this is one of the things that you hope they develop, and you're really reducing their opportunities to do it in a game situation. Well, maybe they're setting it up to fail then. Maybe they know it's going to fail at the A-ball level. Somebody in a committee had to have his way on this one. Right. (laughs) Well, let's go to something that baseball has talked quite a bit about in the recent years, and that is doing something about the shifts in baseball. And apparently the idea is in double A, they're going to not totally ban shifting, 
but they're going to force infielders to actually be on the infield. Now I'm waiting for these guys to like put one toe on the infield line to say that they're there. Andy, is, is this really going to have any effect on the game? Well, you know, shifts happen. Well done. You know, this is also being dubbed the anti-shift rule, or as I like to say, the lefty exasperator. <laughs> you know, this, this rule is basically saying all four infielders have to have their cleats on the infield as the pitch is being mm-hmm. delivered. And if the team violates that, it's an automatic ball. It's a way to try to get balls in play, and it is going to have an impact on left-handed hitting. There's also rumblings that this rule could lead to a more dramatic anti-shift rule. MLB has not ruled out that they could add a stipulation in the second half of the season that would require two infielders on each side of second base. Uh But Mm -hmm. that seems even more complicated to enforce. They would have to draw a line out there. Right, and you're right, exactly. So you're talking about making actual structural changes to the field. Right. Well, and and then one thing is that there's always going to have to be an umpire keeping his eye on that, like a second. And and the second base umpire is frequently in front of second base on certain plays. So how is he going to keep an eye on this? Well, MLB's always been successful at like making sure the batter's box isn't obliterated by any of the batters so that batters can always stay (laughs) in the batter's box and coaches always stay in the coaching box as we know. So they're really good at enforcing those kinds of spatial rules. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. this should be Mm -hmm. no problem. (laughs) Right. Especially at a big league level. Yeah. Leave it to the umpires. And, um, you know, that's always tricky because the umpires don't want to be out there. They don't want to be the bad guy for an unpopular rule. Well, Chuck, I've heard they're going to grow the bases in the minor leagues to make them bigger, <laughs> to grow interest in the game. Is that right? <laughs> oh, Yeah, th- this is an interesting one because by enlarging the bases three inches, I guess they're moving first base an inch and a half closer to the plate right. and also reducing the distance between bases by, I guess, I guess three inches, inch and a half, inch and a half. I guess the effect will be that there will be like a marginal increase in safe calls that prolong innings increased by some minuscule fraction batting average on balls in play. I suppose there'll also be fewer collisions or injuries around the bases on, you know, plays that require traffic, you know, since fielders on the double play, especially have a scotch more room to evade runners. But one of the stated goals of this change is to spur more base stealing, which I don't know. I'm skeptical that this is going to do that. I mean, after all, we're in a live ball home run era of historic proportions. So why would a runner risk getting picked off the bases or caught stealing when his teammate at the place is going to jack a bomb anyway? Uh, you know, basically stolen bases per game's play are at their lowest levels since the late 50s, which itself was the lowest level ever. Right. And it's not because the bases are too far apart. And it's certainly not because players today are much slower runners than players were decades ago. I think everyone would agree that the opposite is true. It's because... Even with stolen base success rates at 75%, which is the highest they've ever been, it's still considered a bad percentage play to try to steal a base because of the ubiquity of the home run. So if you want, if you really want more stolen bases, you've got to reduce homers. So what I'm hearing from all three of you on these changes is that this is really much ado or not even that much ado about very uh, little, that yeah. the potential of these changes to have any real impact is, is very limited. What about 
game clocks. I guess they're introducing that in the low A West a. League. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> right. And, and is that going to speed California up the game, league. you think? I'm okay with it if it means that pitchers and hitters are both expected to do their part and follow the rules. I mean, I'm happy right. to get rid of the Steve Traxels. Okay. As long as we also get rid of the Mike Hargroves, you know, as like long as we get rid of between pitches. Right. If we can get rid of both of those things, I think that wouldn't hurt at all. Well, I think it depends how seriously the umpires are going to enforce violations too. I mean, you know, that's probably a lot easier for umpires to do in a low A league against a bunch of kids you know, who don't have much of a voice and who are always changing from year to year, they don't see the same kids every year, than it would be for a major league umpire against, you know, established veterans that they've known for years and who have a fair amount of power in the game. Right, I mean, good point. How, how really much are, point. you know, and, and another part of that rule is pitchers, since they have to put everything they have on every pitch, they have to take more time in between pitches to catch their breath Reset. so they can go right. deeper Reset. into games. So this is definitely going to run headlong into that <laughs> imperative. There is the sense that pitchers need more time to recover between pitches now. Yes. I think that's a very real thing, and pitchers mm-hmm. do feel that and talk about it. I guess my general feeling about baseball is that the game has become so serious, and all sports in general have become so serious, that our whole perspective on them has changed. We now have to think about the fact that since guys throw so bleeding hard every pitch, they have to worry about more recovery time. didn't used to be an issue when right. you could get guys out throwing 74 miles an hour if you had good command. Sure. Um, well, also throwing 74 miles an hour over the plate so you can get contact because you had a dead ball that wasn't going to go over the fence. Or that not every hitter was being trained to be a, an all-or-nothing guy. A hitter, yeah. You had a, a wider variety of kinds yep. of people who were Absolutely. in a lineup. Right, you but that's because the ball is easier to hit out of the ballpark. That's why but you, you had bat control guys in the 60, you know, in 1962, you know, when you still had bat control guys mm-hmm. in the lineup when you had a record number of homers, or 61 rather, and it's just more hmm. now an extreme than it's ever been. For sure. Right. Analytics had a lot to do with that, of course. I would say you know so much before a guy even gets to the plate. No, it's true. Than, than ever before. Yep. It's true. I mean, you know, you've seen these guys carry cards out in the field with them, you know, on their wrist, or, you know, yeah. catchers have them on their wrist. Guys in the field have them in their back pocket in between hitters. Yeah. And when did that become legal? I was thinking the same thing. Probably in the last 10 years. Well, you know, they have video in the clubhouse now. and They're more tightly regulating that now, and that's good. They should. I've been hearing this idea of moving to something called Amish baseball, where once the game starts, you leave all the electronics behind. No iPads to look at video. I love that. No video rooms. I do, too. No, nothing in your back pocket. No cheating like that. That might be a little harder to enforce. There's a lot more chance, though, of the game feeling more like an authentic game that that isn't dependent on the possibility of cheating. Now, if we have Amish baseball, does that mean that the players will all have to go through Rumspringa? Yes. Go through a big rebellion? <laughs> yes. You know? And they may never come back we, to the game. So they may never come back to the void. game. Have you looked at the beards recently in baseball? <laughs> yes. Yes. You are so. true. That's true. Jim just won that round. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so are, you a rele- are you a major league reliever, an artisanal banjo maker, brewer, <laughs> brewer. or Amish? Or Amish. <laughs> and now let's return to an idea that actually has already been tested, and that's what people have called robotic umpires, or I guess to be more technical, they're calling the automated ball and strike technology, or ABS, and that's going to be tried out in some low A ball. Will electronic strike zones ever come to the major leagues, or is this just more Boy. experimentation? 
Yes. Oh, really? I think it will as well. It, eventually. I think it's already got traction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, people are talking about zone. it in positive terms. They are Calling talking about it. Really? seems to be the hardest officiating job in sports. It seems harder than anything else. And umpires are not perfect. And I feel like they should be allowed to focus on what they're really good at, which is calling the bases, controlling the flow of the game, getting the calls right, putting them in the position to do their jobs the best they can. I know the things I had read in the 2019 season after it was in the Atlantic League and things I've read now, players hate it, obviously, (laughs) especially Mm -hmm. catchers who are, you know, the framing of the pitches Mm -hmm. really uh, being affected. And also the software is still very glitchy. They're talking about these sweeping breaking balls that -hmm. were called strikes Mm -hmm. and no human thought they were strikes. They said they're eliminating this three-dimensional aspect of the ABS that's supposed to eliminate these optical sort of illusion strikes. So technology when it catches up maybe and maybe also younger pitchers as they come up this will be integrated in training and it won't be Mm -hmm. like it is now implementing with guys who have already learned framing and have their own process yeah yeah it's gonna be painful but they got to flip generations before i don't have a problem with getting rid of i mean framing is not a skill framing is like cheating framing is like a cheating skill like being able to cut across the infield when there were only two umpires as a skill. I don't have a problem with Hmm. getting rid of catchers. I don't have any problem with it either. I mean, I don't, I've never had a problem with framing as being, I mean, it's been, it's been accepted. Everybody does it. So nobody complains about it. It can't be cheating if nobody's complaining about it, but I'm with you on it. I won't miss it. Finally, let's offer some last bites. Each of our baseball buffs will offer one last delicious morsel. Andy, what's your last bite? Okay. After a 15-season career that included three gold gloves and the record for most consecutive errorless games by an outfielder at 398, former Baltimore Orioles and Atlanta Braves outfielder Nick Marcakis is officially retiring from the game. It came to no surprise that the low-key 37-year-old Marcakis made up his mind shortly after the 2020 postseason with the Braves when it came to an abrupt end. He didn't tell anyone outside of those closest to him that he was retiring until earlier this month. On leaving the game, he says, I just think it's my time. I've been fortunate enough to do this for a very long time, and I'm thankful for every second and every minute. Marcakis's plans for retirement are equally as modest spending more time at home with his wife and their three boys, expressing enthusiasm to be a stay-at-home dad and just take care of the house and kids. In Marcakis's career, he batted 300 twice, had a pair of 100 RBI seasons with the Orioles. He had a highlight reel year in 2018 with the Braves that included 705 plate appearances, a starting position in an all-star game, a gold glove, Silver Slugger Award, and finished top 20 for, for MVP considerations. Marcakis spent nine of his 15 seasons with the Orioles, the club that selected him seventh overall pick in the 2003 amateur draft out of Young Harris College in Georgia, where he had been the National Junior College Player of the Year. In Baltimore, Marcakis will be remembered as one of the most important Orioles of the last 25 years. In Atlanta, he was a Georgia boy who came home to help the Braves return to the postseason. I had forgotten just how good Mark Hakes could be. 
Absolutely. (laughs) It's so funny you say that because I read this story that he was retiring and I was like, oh, wow. And I went back and I started looking and I was like, I, the same, I had all these revelations too. Like, wow. How many hits, how many hits does he have? Like 2,500 or something like that? Something like that. Cause he talked about if he wanted to hang around and try to get to 3000 and he was like, that just cheapens my whole career by trying to be very good of Craig Bishio long time. Very right. good, very for long a very time. long time, right. and it, very good at almost every aspect of the game. Right, he was not very well rounded at every and any aspect right. of the game. Right. Just so that kind of player just seems he's a nick of all trades. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, very good. And well zero <laughs> social media presence. Zero social. Really? Media. How twentieth century of him? All right, Stu. What's your last bite? Thirty years ago this month, Tom Selleck went to spring training with the Detroit Tigers spending three weeks in camp preparing for his film, Mr. Baseball. He won respect for his commitment to being one of the guys. He worked hard. He even got Mike Henneman to put deep heat in his jockstrap. And he pinch hit in one game, striking out but putting up a respectable at bat. In the years that followed, musician Bruce Hornsby pinch ran in a spring game for the 1997 Angels. Garth Brooks sprinted four spring trainings with three clubs. Billy Crystal hung with the Yankees in 2008. Kevin Costner took the field for Seattle in 2002 and 2013, and Will Ferrell played for several teams on the same day back in 2015. I'm waiting for the first woman ball player to get a shot at spring training celebrity. That's the final frontier. Chuck, what are you going to end with today? The analytics revolution has evolved to benefit pitchers far more than hitters. Most of the innovations of the last few years, such as Rapsodo cameras, pitch monitor software, tunneling strategy, an entire academy called Driveline, have sprung up to help pitchers who already have first mover advantage by initiating the action on the field to leverage their body's mechanics and add velocity and movement, gaining even more advantage by shaping pitches in ungodly ways to induce even more swing and miss among increasingly hapless hitters. And it's working like a charm. Fangrass tells us that swing and miss strikes have increased by 33% in just the last 10 years, a decade marked by these same innovations. Now comes revelation of yet another pitcher advantage, not exactly birthed by analytics, but would not have been revealed had analytics technology not been in place. I'm talking about seam shifted wake. In layman's terms, seam shift at wake is the air movement that trails pitches after they're thrown and which makes them move in ways that can't be explained just by their spin axis. Simplified example, a pitch with a spin axis of 45 degrees might be expected to break 45 degrees, but seam shift at wake disturbs the air behind the pitch in a way that will cause the ball to break not by the 45 degrees of the spin, but maybe by 30 degrees or 60 degrees, something different to befuddle hitters even further, leading to more swing and miss or at least weak contact. Seam shift at wake might help explain why Greg Maddox, a guy who didn't throw hard, was so good at fooling hitters with his seemingly soft stuff. Maddox knew innately how his ball moved differently based on his grip and his release, even if he didn't have today's vocabulary to explain it. Just imagine what a flamethrower like Jacob deGrom or Garrett Cole can do with explicit knowledge of seam shift at wake movement, given their tools that can already blow away hitters with sheer power. Now, I've been banging the drum for deadening the baseball for years, which I believe will do a lot to restore the balance between pitchers and hitters. I believe it will induce pitchers to throw the ball into the strike zone to most hitters without fearing the home run, which will lead to more contact by hitters, more action on the diamond, more base running risks, longer pitching outings, fewer pitcher injuries, all that. I would still like to see that. 
But with so many of the gains from the application of physics accruing to pitchers to help restore that balance more, I'm starting to soften on the idea of making changes on the diamond as well. A couple ideas I've heard include lowering the mound to as low as six inches and even pushing the mound back to as far as 65 feet. I know this is abhorrent to the baseball traditionalist, and I don't like the idea either. But more abhorrent to me is that over a third of all at-bats end with a batter either walking away from the plate or jogging away from the plate instead of running. So I think I'm ready to consider those changes now. All these last bites were so yummy for the tummy. However, for now, Baseball Buffet must close down. We will revisit it next month when we grab a fresh plate. By then, the season will be underway. And our pandemic frowns will have turned into baseball smiles. 